Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 253 of the Naturally Nourished Podcast. You are joining us for vitamin D and updates on DVOC variants. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. <laughs> the ever desired ask. Yes. We're doing it, guys. We got you. In today's episode, we're going to be unpacking robust function of vitamin D in the body, its role in the pandemic, and as it's been 10 episodes since we've covered pandemic stuff, we'll break down all things Delta, Lambda, whatever is up next, Kappa, Beta, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So before we jump into all of that, uh, let's just talk some updates, Becky. So we are connecting with you guys towards the end of August. And as we had promised you for the last, I feel like, six episodes, you can now purchase our 12-week Food as Medicine Virtual Ketosis Program at AllieMillerRD.com slash ketosis hyphen class, is it? Or ketosis hyphen class. Class. Right? Correct. No, I, got, I, I just had a little brain slowdown. Um, and you can also go under books and programs if that doesn't happen to be the URL, but I believe it is. I think we'll include it in the show notes for sure. Yes. I think anything that you type in, Allie Miller Ketosis, will pull it right up. Awesome. So this is our program that I developed really 10 years ago and have continued to evolve and update and in 2016 brought it fully virtual. It pairs functional medicine with food as medicine interventions, and it has six hour and a half long classes, technically seven classes because there's an intro class, which kind of gets everyone up to speed on keto and how we use ketosis as medicine or as a therapeutic tool to regulate inflammation, of course, optimize metabolic health. So reduce insulin sensitivity, regulate and balance blood sugar levels, also, the support of nutritional ketosis on neurological conditions, on managing mood. You all know it's a foundation of my anti-anxiety diet. And we nerd out throughout this program about how you can really continue to layer in food as medicine through the program. Each class is going to have two to three food as medicine challenges or prescriptions, if you will. Each class also will have customizable materials and quizzes to help you to learn about what is your personal area of advanced need. Do you have to dig into the beat the bloat cleanse? Do you have to instead maybe work on supporting and fertilizing your microbiome with good probiotic rich foods and therapeutic probiotic supplements? Do you have to manage that HPA access and balance the adrenals and that fight or flight response and really harness your stress because your cortisol is messing with your fasting blood sugar levels? Or do you have to harness the inflammation in your body, which is driving up that CRP and maybe you're dealing with leaky gut and you have to determine what's driving that chronic inflammation status. So this program really is a way to have an advanced functional medicine approach to understand whole body 
health, not just macros of managing your keto, although we have that too. We have protocols and phases that you can adapt to your lifestyle, whether you're breastfeeding, whether you're looking for more aggressive weight loss of over 50 pounds, or just small body composition change and increasing muscle mass and strength. We have a protocol for you, and this program has been vetted with thousands of successful participants, but this is the first time ever that we're offering it evergreen. It used to always be only in live classes that we did two to three times a year, and now when you purchase it for only $99 instead of $299, you get access to this entire course, all of the materials, all of the videos, and you can watch it over the planned three months, but also nerd out, dig deeper, rewatch, and revisit for the lifetime of our website. Yes, it's been a huge ask, and we finally have been able to make it happen. And as I was going through this past weekend and getting the classroom ready for this archive round, there is just so much in there. You kind of forget when you create something like yeah. this that it's a, a beast in terms of the amount of additional resource that we provide for you all and we put into each individual module. So it's divided into six modules. You can watch it at your own pace, which yes. is amazing. Uh, like Ali said, rewatch as many times as you want, or you can go at that 12-week pace and there's going to be email support uh, that coincides with that 12-week timeline. So every two weeks, you'll be getting an email to check in. Hey, have you watched class two yet? Here's what you can expect. Here are some of the helpful resources and links. Here are your food as medicine goals. So it's like Allie and I kind of checking in on you from yes. time to time. And sharing our favorite products yes. as well as supplements and maybe advanced labs that all correspond with the materials you just learned. So, you know, we hit on things like thyroid and hormones and so much more. Go on over to AllieMillerRD.com and check it out and grab yourself a spot. All right, let's have a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Fond Bone Broth. Yes, so y'all know that we love Fond Bone Broth. They make slow, simmered, lovingly tended from simmer to seal bone broths, and they really provide wellness that is well made. They ensure that their quality starts even with the water that they source, which I find to be extremely important. They use well water that has natural occurring minerals and is tested daily for excellence. And then even in the materials that they cook with, they use stainless steel, so no leaching plastics involved in your product. And then they bottle in glass jars. They partner with organic farmers, so sustainable quality, nutrient-dense produce that's used in their flavors. And that's what really brings Fond to the next level beyond being quality it is absolutely delicious <laughs> their flavor profiles are fantastic i'm really obsessed with the lemon and radish blend i also love the beet and serrano pepper blend as well as the turmeric cracked pepper and they come up with seasonal varieties and are launching their beef line i think that's going to be yeah. available i know i've been teasing also that for like months but I believe that I'll be unboxing the beef at the end of the month of August. So I'm super excited to get a taste of that as well. Uh, really, they can serve as like a sous chef in a jar. They can really help you to take your recipes to the next level by imparting that flavor profile as well as nutrient density. And I recommend you go on over to fondbonebroth.com and use the code AllieMillerRD at checkout. You will save money and let them know that you're voting with your dollar by learning about them through the Naturally Nourished podcast. Yes, I was just out of town. It's literally the thing I do like as a ritual. The second I get back, I'm like bringing the suitcase in from the car. I grab a jar of fond. 
heat it up on the stovetop and sip on that while I'm like decompressing and getting yes. back home from really any travel. So. Yeah. So whether you kind of had an off weekend with friends and had more inflammatory foods or higher sweets or processed foods or higher alcohol, it's one way to kind of cut that caloric stressor and also support detoxification, like doing a three-day bone broth fast. But you can also just immunologically or just to really support that stress on the gut. We know when we're stressed, and I remember flying with a baby <laughs> is quite stressful. Uh, oh, but you know, no, Noah's perfect. <laughs> but you know, that whole stress response, as we've talked, stress literally drills holes in your gut. So giving your gut some extra loving in any transitional time of stress, and as we start to gear up for immune season, something to definitely keep packed in your pantry. So fondbonebroth.com, Allie Miller RD. All right, let's do it. So kicking things off, let's just go into some basics of vitamin D or vitamin D 101. Yes. Um, let's talk about what it is and what it does in the body. Okay, so vitamin D is a group of fat-soluble secosteroids, and they are responsible for increasing intestinal absorption of calcium, magnesium, and phosphate. And the steroidal formation of vitamin D has many, as we'll cover in today's episode, biological and immunological and metabolic and inflammatory mediating effects in the body. The most important compounds of the vitamin D group are vitamin D3 and vitamin D2. And unlike any other vitamin, only about 10% of vitamin D that the body needs tends to come from food. Uh, this is often coming from oily fish, and we do see fortified forms in our dairy products. We'll talk food as medicine at the end, as we always do. But the majority, 90 plus percent of our vitamin D stores in our body, unlike vitamins, which we need all from the diet, the majority, 90 plus percent, is to be made by the body itself as a pro-hormone that is produced photochemically in our skin from the source of 7-dehydrocholesterol. Um, and so 7-dehydrocholesterol is going to be the precursor or the building block, and it comes from, can you guess it, cholesterol, right? So another reason why we don't demonize cholesterol, and we know that cholesterol is an integral component of all cell membranes in our body. So cholesterol plays a role in that bilipid membrane, protecting our cells, keeping what needs to stay inside safe and protected and um, working as a barrier, if you will, as well as aiding in absorption and communication through our cells. Okay, and then maybe before we highlight some of the physiological functions or roles of vitamin D, let's just unpack a little bit more about how it's made. And I think that is really key that, you know, we're only getting 10% from our food. So our body has to make the rest of it. And I've been thinking about this a lot with the context of summertime and sunscreen and yes. getting that sun exposure. Yes, absolutely. So as a steroid, it's, it's very almost identical in chemical structure to cholesterol. And we do require vitamin, vitamin D uh, production from requiring UV exposure. And it's the UVB exposure from sun. Uh, and this also requires our liver and kidney health for optimal production. So cholesterol is going to convert to that 7-dehydrocholesterol metabolite and then to cholecalciferol in the liver. And then from the liver to the kidney, we make 25-hydroxy vitamin D3, 
which is going to be that calcidiol or cholecalciferol, the major circulating metabolite. And then in the kidney, it's further metabolized to the 125 dihydroxyvitamin D or calcitriol. And that's the form that's gonna be more active in our intestines, our bone, our muscle, and our parathyroid. Okay, so all of those nerdy <laughs> numbers aside, let's talk maybe vitamin D and, and sex hormone status. Yes, so I think it's really important to kind of when we think about, and maybe let's just talk for a moment about what could drive low vitamin sure, D. Sure, yeah, yeah. So I think that's so, I kind of skimmed so over. Yeah, I kind of yep. skimmed over that part of your question. And, um, you know, I think it's important that, yes, we are getting less exposure outside than ever, just ancestrally, right? Because <laughs> we're living and working inside. Most people's occupation does not demand them to be outside in the fields, hunting, gathering, and getting that passive sun exposure. Then beyond that, a lot of the cosmetic lotions and especially facial products, as we have discussed in past episodes on skin health, are going to have that uh, sun protection in there, which is going to interfere with that vitamin D synthesis or the production in our body. So both by blocking with clothing and sunscreens and also just not getting the access to sun is huge. And then we also see individuals that are at risk that are going to be on a statin drug. So right, if they're lowering their cholesterol levels to those hypocholesterolemia, then they don't have that precursor, that building block. And we tend to see the trend, and this is where we connect with sex hormone, we tend to see the trend also in those that are low in sex hormone to have low vitamin D status, likely due to, again, that low precursor. So we've talked about how cholesterol is that master pregnenolone, which then has to make you know our sex hormones and our cortisol, our corticosteroids, but we also need that cholesterol to make that vitamin D which would say beyond the cholesterol-lowering drugs, we're also looking at individuals that have issues with fatty acid deficiencies, so people that are on a bile acid sequesterant drug, uh, individuals that have liver and gallbladder issues. Of course, if we have issues with kidney or liver health, we're not able to activate from that photosynthetic production. And then individuals that just aren't eating enough fat in their diet would have you know, a risk for that lower fat level as well. So vitamin D status, we could say, is more of a, a symptom of something else likely going on in the body totally. and probably not enough to just supplement with vitamin D. It's going to help. It's going to get you above water, but there are likely other factors that need to be addressed kind of below the surface. Yeah. And connecting to the hormone population, I think it's important to note when I was digging into research for this episode, that there's a lot of studies that were uh, one new one that just came out published by the Endocrine Society's Journal of Clinical Endo Endocrinology and Metabolism that looks at the trend of women stopping oral birth control use having falling levels of vitamin D. And that's because there's an estrogen receptor function of vitamin D. And so I think that's really important for our listeners because I think we've motivated a lot of our listeners yeah. to get off of their oral yeah. birth control. Uh, and it's not because the birth control is doing it. It's because, as we've discussed in our birth control episodes 106 and 107, we'll link those for you guys, um, when you go off of an exogenous hormone, which is what birth control is, it's synthetic hormone from the outside, that kind of reduces your production of your own body's sex hormone, right? And so you tend to have lower levels of estrogen and progesterone following weaning off of your birth control, and that tends to plummet your vitamin D stores. Super interesting. And so then, it's not a, a drug-nutrient interaction necessarily in terms of 
the uh, the birth control is depleting vitamin D. No. I mean, there's a lot of nutrients that are depleted by birth control for sure and reasons to get off of it. Cost benefit still in favor of getting off. It's the (laughs) aftermath of the suppression of your Mm -hmm. own sex hormone production that interferes with vitamin D status. And in the same level, we can see a chicken and egg the other way if you're, you know, running low hormone, you need vitamin D to make hormones. And so that's, again, another big, important population. After birth control, we need vitamin D is important. And also during pregnancy, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's talked about enough because women give a lot of their maternal vitamin D to baby to support the fetal skeleton formation and development. And so we see increased risk of vitamin D deficiency in this population. And then in men, we talked about this in that YouTube video on libido. We can link that. Vitamin D is actually like the most powerful nutrient-dependent influencing factor on low testosterone levels. Okay, so super cool stuff in the world of sex hormones. Let's talk about this research study you've got here. Yes. So when we looked at men that had low vitamin D status, they supplemented half of the population with active vitamin D, and they used a placebo in the other population. And they saw an increase to 53.5. So in that that lower end of that optimal range in the supplemental group of vitamin D, um, they saw that beyond their vitamin D levels going up, they also saw a significant increase in total testosterone levels, in bioactive testosterone, and in free testosterone. And these were only observed in the vitamin D group. So they saw both their vitamin D levels going up to ideal range and all three of those markers of testosterone status increasing when there was no significant change in testosterone or vitamin D status in the placebo group. And they used a dosage of 5,000 IUs. Okay, cool. And that's exactly what's in, I'm sure we'll get to it, but our vitamin D balance blend. Yes. So I always say, you know, if you're having issues with sex hormone, whether it's PCOS, there's a lot of compelling Mm -hmm. research to insulin resistance, um, which we think of insulin as a hormone as well. The vitamin D deficiency could be one of the limiting components driving that whole body imbalance. Sure. And then even like estrogen dominance, that world of things, low progesterone, I think it could be really helpful. Even irregular menstrual cycles and severe cramping. So definitely one to watch for. Okay. Um, So on mechanism of action, like all hormones, vitamin D is going to function as a lock and key mechanism. So in this case, we're looking at vitamin D receptors as the lock or target tissue. Um, Let's talk about kind of the impacts there and, and considerations. Yes. So we have vitamin D receptors present in almost every cell in our body. And that right there just denotes the significance, right? If it's, if it's everywhere, that means that the body clearly sure. needs yep. it everywhere. <laughs> and, you know, vitamin D again, primarily what it was identified earlier in research was to regulate the intestinal and renal or kidney transport of calcium and other minerals. And I think the dumbed down understanding of vitamin D is is that regulation of calcium plays a role with skeletal muscle function because we need um, that calcium for muscle contraction and also for bone health. But our vitamin D receptor is involved in sustaining this normal calcemia or regulated calcium status by inhibiting the production of the parathyroid, which sits above the thyroid gland. And um, the parathyroid hormone has many effects directly also on this expression of bone and skeletal muscle. We can see, of course, beyond those areas of bone and muscle health, conditions such as asthma, atherosclerosis, or plaque formation in cardiovascular disease, um, conditions such as autism and the whole neurological world of health, 
chronic fatigue, bipolar disorder, IBS, just a few to name that are associated with vitamin D deficiency. So it has a vital role in immune, hormone, thyroid, metabolic, and cardiovascular health. Okay, and then I think one of the best ways to really understand the impact of a nutrient is identifying the deficiency symptoms. For sure. Um, And it's important to note that deficiency is really prevalent. We're looking at 41% of Americans deficient according to the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. And this deficiency, we just need to call out, was less than 20 nanograms per milliliter. So that would be severe deficiency. And, And you've got to look at that when you do a blood test in your doctor's office. It may not, you may not get flagged if you're like, at 21 or 32 or something. And in our book, you are still deficient. Yes. And we'll talk testing and ranges for sure. But, but be mindful of that 41% of Americans under 20 NGs over ML, because we're going to start talking about morbidity or actual Uh like mortality death risk association with this severity of vitamin D status. And it's not pretty. So that's really alarming to me. Especially in context of COVID too. I mean, just knowing what we know. Yes. It's intense. (laughs) I know. Okay. So So let's talk deficiency symptoms. Yes. So some of the big ones that we'd start with and just kind of breaking down, I'll I'll try to stick to five or eight. We'll see. Um, So aching muscles and reduced muscle performance is a big one. Um, And we think of this especially in the growth and development world. And this is why it's really important and why I think the Board of Pediatrics has started vitamin D supplementation from infancy onward. Um, This can play such a role in healthy bone and muscle growth, as well as, of course, immune health. But we've seen that nearly half of adults are actually affected as well by severe muscle pain, which drives increased intake of NSAID drugs, which we've talked about on the podcast in various forms. Those NSAIDs like Aleve and Advil and a lot of things that help with dull, aching pain can really create havoc in the overall body's function of blood clotting as well as leaky gut and gut damage. So we do see that researchers have tied the deficiency of vitamin D in resolution of a lot of these aches, which could then have a multitude of beneficial factors. That's what we love about functional medicine. You can resolve a root cause and then get a myriad of benefits versus using something to silence a symptom like an NSAID and then driving further dysfunction or need for more medication intervention. Um, We've also seen individuals to have a significant impact on bone pain, Um, again, because that calcium regulation, vitamin D deficiency can actually cause your bones to soften, causing osteomalacia, and that can be a precursor to osteoporosis. Uh, We know the importance of vitamin D with calcium supplementation and that osteoporotic age group as we age also to be equally important. Fatigue is a big one, actually. Uh, Researchers have found that supplementing cancer patients with vitamin D can have significant outcomes. There was a study where they looked at 174 adults with fatigue and uh, stable medical conditions, so not with active disease state, and they found that 77.2% of them were deficient in vitamin D. And after normalizing their vitamin D levels, the fatigue symptoms significantly improved. That's huge. I think that's a huge one nutrient. Yeah. Right, right. And that was a randomized clinical trial. Uh, Brain health cannot go without being hit for sure here. So, vitamin D is essential for your brain health. We can see onset of dementia and Alzheimer's because the vitamin D deficiency can drive an increase of the beta amyloid plaque, both the soluble and insoluble plaque formations. 
Um, we've seen in studies that depression can be associated with vitamin D levels, driving uh, low vitamin D levels, um, impacting the calcium status in the brain. We've seen cognitive function with vitamin D deficiency increasing risk of dementia twofold and raising your risk of impaired cognitive function. And then we've seen impacts on vitamin D deficiency in pregnant women. So that kind of uh, genomic expression on carrying baby and, and growing a super baby or uh, interfering with optimal health in baby. And we've seen vitamin D deficiency in pregnancy actually increasing risk of autism as well as schizophrenic-like disorders in their baby, their offspring. Uh, we see a lot of connections with fibromyalgia, which could tie into the sore aching muscles and neurological as well as depression connection. Um, so those with fibromyalgia had vitamin D deficiency and higher of those had anxiety and depression as well. And um, fibromyalgia, we often see with low serotonin expression. So let's talk about serotonin and dopamine impact yeah, so from vitamin D. Although these aren't hormones, these sure. neurohormones, if you will, um, are really a big connection to likely why there is seasonal depression. Mm -hmm. um, because we know that the vitamin D assimilation actually plays a favorable role in the expression and balance of serotonin and dopamine, those feel-good neurohormones. So there's actually neurotransmitter connection, brain inflammatory and oxidative stress, all which could contribute that aging as well as mood dysregulation. Sure. And then hair loss. I think we often think like B, B vitamins, vitamins and iron, yeah. but what about vitamin D? Yes. So vitamin D is actually crucial in the proliferation of the... Um, I can never say this, the, the keratinocytes, um, the keratinocytes, which play yeah. an important role in your hair cycle. And um, we've seen that treatments with vitamin D, uh, focusing on upregulating the vitamin D receptor can actually be successful in treating hair disorders uh, and aid with regeneration and growth. Um, so I think that that's a really big one to be mindful of as well. And probably because of that barrier defense of uh -huh. the BDR being on that cell barrier. Um, so that like kind of more um, protective mechanism as an essential fatty component and pro-hormone would be the mechanism there. Okay. And then dizziness and vertigo is an interesting connection. Yeah. And this could connect with the dopamine metabolism. Mm -hmm. We often yeah. think of yeah, like yeah. tinnitus and dizziness or vertigo being with excessive dopamine, which can be, you know, that's made by the adrenal glands and that can drive more of that hypervigilance or that really dynamic fight or flight response. But there have been some models that suggest that vitamin D plays a role with development of the inner ear, and this has a direct influence with balance and coordination. So when we're looking at like vestibular neuritis or uh, vertigo conditions, we tend to see lower serum vitamin D levels and some resolution in symptoms when vitamin D levels are optimized again. Okay, and then let's talk maybe cardiovascular benefits and and weight and obesity kind of within that too. Yeah. So cardiovascular has multiple mechanisms. Uh, you know, both we can see on the circulatory function that we can see blood pressure improvement with optimized vitamin D. Um, we've seen in a study, researchers discovered that vitamin D has a role on the endothelial cells. So these are the cells that line your cardiovascular system. And they found that it helps with optimizing vitamin D, helps with balancing concentrations of nitric oxide, which is 
really probably also an immunological focus when we're talking about coronavirus mm. or COVID, because we know that that nitric oxide suppression is what can interfere with getting oxygen to tissues of need and respiratory health. So um, that study that looked at nitric oxide regulation and the endothelial cells also found that, of course, it improves endothelial function in the cardiovascular system. Super cool. And then weight, yeah. I think, is in yeah, the yeah. world Let's of do that one. cardiometabolic. Um, so I mentioned insulin resistance as one mechanism. So if you have insulin resistance, you likely are dealing with increased blood sugar levels. Increased blood sugar drives increased body fat storage. So that's that mechanism there of how vitamin D works. And then it also plays a role on our pituitary gland. And the pituitary gland is the P of that HPA axis, that fight or flight response in the body. But the pituitary is where we make a lot of our sex hormones. So that could be a direct mechanism there of where our progesterone estrogen, you know, our FSH and LH is regulated there, but also our TSH, our thyroid stimulating hormone. So we know that vitamin D is necessary in an optimal status to balance thyroid hormones. And we see a deficiency highly corresponding with individuals that have autoimmune thyroiditis or Hashimoto's. And often their TPO or their inflammatory markers will regulate to some degree when their vitamin D status is optimized. Okay. And then maybe let's talk cancer prevention. I know we said we'd do five to eight, but cancer and then and that we'll brings hit. us into yeah, immune. immune. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, with cancer, um, we do see a lot of research with vitamin D and breast cancer, as well as prostate cancer cells being inhibited by vitamin D in the body. So optimizing has a competitive inhibition or reduces the, um, rapid rate in which cancer cells can reproduce. And um, there is a lot of correlation studies, so that's actually a, a research looking at that. But then there are correlation studies when we look at populations of risk factors of cancer, and we tend to see that those in um, sunlight um, and have higher vitamin D status having lower cancer risk. And super interesting with the whole discussion of skin cancer as one yeah. form of cancer too. No doubt, no doubt. And then that kind of takes us into immune. So if we're looking at the generalized immune stuff before we go like pandemic, mm -hmm. um, there are compelling studies looking at slowing um, wound uh, healing with vitamin D deficiencies. So individuals that have chronic wounds, you know, this is a lot of what drives like sepsis and um, advanced aging mortality, especially in like long-term care facilities. We usually think of zinc and vitamin C, um, but we can see that wound healing really requires vitamin D because it does create um, a peptide in the body that specifically fights wound infections. So it can actually reduce infections. And within that mechanism, there's reduced recurring infections in general with optimized vitamin D status, or we see recurring infections with insufficient vitamin D levels. And there have been multiple epidemiological studies that show vitamin D deficiency can increase risk of infection, raise the severity of that said infection. And particularly, we see high trends with the respiratory tract infections. Uh, and that's where we tend to see the higher expressed mortality or illness and death. Yeah, let's, let's unpack this area in particular because we know this vitamin D immune connection is super relevant for all of our listeners um, and, and really, you know, optimizing everyone's resilience in pandemic times. Yes. Um, so let's talk how this impacts the immune system specifically and get into some of the nerdy mechanisms. Okay. 
So vitamin D, again, is this unique pro-hormone, and it plays an influence to almost 3,000 genes in our body, which makes it a huge component in the body's immune system. Uh, it has been used historically for treatment of infections such as tuberculosis, including common flu, um, which we have to save that thought as a controversial element of what's recently happened with the NIH and vitamin D recommendations uh -huh. now, right? Um, but anyway, uh, vitamin D exhibits its effects both on the innate and the acquired immune system. So its innate immune system function is by modulating the gene expression to activate monocytes and macrophages to target foreign invaders and prevent infection. And then in its acquired or learned immune mechanism, it has some T-cell connections. So vitamin D is also able to activate T-cells, uh, which are literally what are transformed into the killer cells or the helper cells that work to destroy and acquire the immune-regulated memory of pathogens. So when we're talking about the T-cell function, that's if you've been exposed, how your body would have a favorable outcome with future exposure to said pathogen, which could be virus, bacteria, um, or fungi, if you will. And vitamin D has also been shown with that T-cell connection to have an influence on autoimmune conditions because there's also some stabilizing T-cell functions. And then the vitamin D receptor itself, the vitamin D receptor expression and activity are also important for all stages of the T-cell's life. So from developmental stages to differentiation to elicitation of effector functions, we see VDR expression and activity associated with immunology and protecting against infections in the body. Okay, and then what about specific to the respiratory system? So yeah, we talked about that endothelial mm -hmm. nitric oxide connection, which I think is a key component. Um, but we've seen that um, vitamin D has favorable effects during the early viremic or the early viral infection phase of COVID-19, as well as in the later hyperinflammatory phases. So there's both the onset and reducing the replic replication of the virus, so reducing the infectivity or the level of the viral load, and then also regulating an immune, modulating the expression of the inflammation. And we see this really in all forms of ARDS or acute respiratory disease syndromes. Uh, we saw this to be a very beneficial player with forms of SARS. Uh, we see this as a tool even with asthma, the ability of the uh, vitamin D to help to regulate the oxygenation and the inflammatory process of our respiratory tract. And then there's even really solid information on vitamin D regulating inflammation in terms of immune Systemic, response yeah. as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. let's talk that. Yeah, so just to kind of kind of round out the mechanism so far. So vitamin D has multiple actions on the immune system. It activates the T cells to support the memory response, right? And also bring in that secondary army of those natural killer responders. Um, it has the innate antiviral properties with our white blood cell response and reducing the viral replication. It can enhance the production of antimicrobial peptides through our immune cell response. It can reduce damaging pro-inflammatory cytokines, which is that cytokine storm we all heard about. 
and it can also promote the expression of anti-inflammatory cytokines. So it can reduce the excessive cytokine while also bringing in ample anti-inflammatory cytokine response. And that's a balance that I think is really important to take into account because when we looked at severity of outcomes, we were seeing influence with those that were not metabolically healthy, those that had higher oxidative stress and higher inflammatory response. Um, and there was a study published in the scientific reports in May that looked at effects of pulse D therapy. So this was using high dose supplementation. So this was 60,000 IUs of vitamin D. For, so this is quite high, right? So 60,000 IUs of vitamin D for eight to 10 days in addition to standard therapy for COVID-19 um, in patients that were deficient in vitamin D. And their vitamin D levels did significantly increase in the vitamin D group. Uh, the average level was at 16 NGs per ml, so super, super oh, yeah. low. It increased up to 89, which is crazy. I, I would have imagined it to go like 300, right, mm -hmm. at that mega dose. But, but clearly there's only enough absorption and, and really bioaccumulation that's capable in the body. Um, and they saw beyond the vitamin D status going to that optimal range of 89, they saw also inflammatory markers significantly decreasing without any side effects. And I have to read this quote because I think it's very compelling. And then you'll see what's happened with the response in America. Um, vitamin D acts, this is the quote, vitamin D acts as a smart switch to decrease the TH, the T helper one response and pro-inflammatory cytokines while enhancing the production of anti-inflammatory cytokines in cases of immune dysregulation. It is pertinent to note that SARS-CoV-2 virus activates the T helper one response and suppresses the T helper two response. So specific to the mechanism of the immunological and inflammatory impact, vitamin D was found to be a very helpful tool with no unfavorable effects. And yet studies like that were suppressed and I'm sure you had to dig really deep to actually find that. <laughs> yes. And we've linked a good amount of them yes. for you guys, of course, always in our show notes. Yes. So working as this immunomodulator, if you will, vitamin D is really the perfect candidate for countering this immune dysregulation that's common with COVID-19. Yes. Um, so let's talk about just some more of the powerful studies and statistics that we've seen with supplementation and kind of what that deficiency status can mean in terms of mortality. Yeah. I mean, I think the most compelling study looked at 32.96% of those with asymptomatic cases were vitamin D deficient compared to 96.82% of those that were admitted to the ICU for a severe case. So we see a sig, I mean, if you're saying of the people that were admitted to the ICU, almost night, you could round that up to 97, 97% of them had a chronic that was at severe deficiency, mm -hmm. lower than 20, 97% of them. I mean, that, that is a substantial. And then comparing in those that are asymptomatic and seeing less of that threshold, you could say that it's a protective mechanism of that reduces symptomatology. And yet let's talk about what the NIH did on their yes. website. Yes. So um, those that were deficient, of course, in vitamin D had a higher inflammatory response and a greater fatality rate. Yet as of April 21st of this year, 2021, because that study came out that I just referenced in November mm -hmm. of 2020. Okay. In April of 2021, the U.S. National Institutes of Health updated its COVID-19 treatment guidelines slash vitamin D page. And this was the quote, 
there are insignificant data to recommend either for or against the use of vitamin D for the prevention or treatment of COVID-19. But let's keep talking about actually how it does (laughs) work and the statistics behind it, but how just absolutely frustrating. And again, this is something that has been shown clinically safe and effective. So it's not that there's question of harm or risk. There's actually efficacy of also impacting the comorbidities. If we look at other stats with COVID-19 and mortality, and we know that only 6% of individuals that died had less than two comorbidities. And we just talked about how vitamin D could actually help with these comorbidities, right? Uh The cardiovascular diseases, the blood pressure, the inflammation in the system, the metabolic health. That's what's just absolutely asinine and you know makes you want to hit your head on a brick wall. But um, we will just keep sharing light and not let that damper our flame. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it is so wild. I feel like that was the one of the first areas of suppression that was coming out with probably vitamin C and then vitamin D. I don't remember in which order, yeah, but yeah. early on where they were, you know, stating that people who are prescribing high dose vitamin C were quacks. And yet we see that study with 60,000 IU of vitamin D right. having improved outcomes. And, and we just didn't see all of this. And no harm. That was yep. even stated yep. in the study again. And that's that's an astronomical dosage, you yep. know, in, in theory compared to what's typically recommended. Yep. So let's talk about uh, reduction of deaths and ICU admissions. Yep. And I'm just going to spit some stats and just, just to say, like, what the hell? Um, so... A study in Barcelona um, hospital system, about half of the patients received vitamin D in the amount of 21,280 IUs. That's a very random number. We can call it 21,000 IUs a day um, uh, on day one. And then they got 10,000 IUs on days three, seven, 15, and 30. Okay, so kind of spaced apart there, starting with 21,000. And then they got 10,000 IUs on uh, days three, seven, 15, and 30. And so they're kind of going half length as they went, you know, three days out and then a week out and then two weeks out. And they found that those that received the vitamin D fared significantly better with only 4.5% requiring ICU admission compared to 21% in the non-vitamin D group. Um, They noted also that vitamin D treatment was significantly um, found with reduced mortality Um, And they found only 4.7% of the vitamin D group dying during admission with 15.9% in the non-vitamin D group. Um, And there's another really poll quote that I thought was powerful that looked at um, from the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. And uh, they noted, this is a very important study on vitamin D and COVID-19. Its findings are incredibly clear. An 80% reduction in need for ICU and a 60% reduction in deaths simply by giving a very cheap and very safe therapy, calcifediol or activated vitamin D. The findings of this large and well-conducted study should result in therapy being administered to every COVID patient in every hospital in the temperate latitudes. Like a pretty compelling, I think, Uh um, summary there, right? Yet. Yeah, there's no evidence. Yeah. Right. Um, We saw in Saudi Arabia a randomized clinical trials. This is gold standard type of study. And they looked at supplementation of either 5,000 IUs or 1,000 IUs of vitamin D3. And they looked at this with individuals that were of the suboptimal population status that were hospitalized for mild to moderate COVID. 
Those in the 5,000 IUs, which again is one single pill of our vitamin D balance blend, had significantly shorter time to recover for cough and loss of taste sensation than those compared to the 1,000, yet the 1,000 still had some clinical efficacy compared to none. So if you were to be hospitalized for vitamin D, for for COVID, um, do you automatically get vitamin D or do you have to ask for it? You have to ask for Uh it. And (laughs) by all means, I would hope that you have a bottle in your um, you know, own medicine cabinet at home that you're pro-vigilant and optimizing your status and that you are able to, mega, we mega dose of vitamin D in the household during any symptom of anything. This was yeah. pre-COVID uh, because of just the dynamic impact on, on what we're talking about. But again, viral replication, both the innate and acquired immune function, regulating inflammation, supporting vascular health, all of the mechanisms of whether we're dealing with cold, flu, or any form of virus is something that that's one that you would want to pulse up at time of symptom. Yes. Um, and so what dose would you recommend? Or are we going to talk about that later? We'll get, yes. we'll, we'll get yes, there. Okay. We'll get there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's just hit a couple more yeah, yeah. shock and awe stats. Um, so there was a good study that looked at, or, or a bunch of studies actually, um, that rounded up a meta-analysis, a systemic, systematic review and meta-analysis published in the Journal of Endocrinological Investigation. And this included 13 studies, including 2,900 COVID-19 patients. And vitamin D was a clear winner with the use of the COVID-19. Here's some of the data that we saw. 87 studies were performed by 784 scientists, and these are the results a 53% improvement in outcomes in 28 treatment trials, a 56% improvement in 59 uh, sufficiency studies, a 63% improvement in 16 treatment mortality results. I mean, that says right. it all right there, right? <laughs> and, and I mean, it's so easy and it's so inexpensive is the part that really gets me. And if we just put as much effort as we put into get the jab, wear mm-hmm. the mask, how about you just take some vitamin D? Right. And and so for COVID-19 patients over 60, it was a recommendation in some of the studies that I read when I kind of was tying all the pieces together to consider if symptomatic and having a positive diagnosis of a viral infection to do a bolus dose or basically a, um, you know, one delivery higher mm-hmm. dose or, or orthomolecular dose, if you will, of 50,000 to 100,000 IU. Um, for anyone under the age of 60 with a positive test, a, a range of you know 2,000 to 5,000 IUs a day, and that could still be the base for any age group, but sure. probably over 60 need 5,000 IUs a day. Um, and then still considering a bolus of somewhere between 20 to 50,000 IUs as a mega dose. And so that is pretty much what we do in my household is um, my daughter Stella is right now at 42 pounds. And um, so when we're looking at doses, we use the back of the vitamin D balance blend bottle and our I guess we can just start talking about that now, right? Let's sure. do it. Let's do it. <laughs> so uh, when we're looking at our vitamin D dosing, um, we're looking at um, the IUs per kilogram in children. And so when we're using the vitamin D balanced blend liquid, um, we're going to start with drops all the way up into droppers full. And the dropper full is going to be 2,000 IUs of vitamin D in their per full ml, if you will. Um, and so Stella is right now, like I said, 42 pounds, and she's getting on average 5,000 to 6,000 IUs of vitamin D a week. 
Um, and so that means that we do a dropper like three times a week. And then when we are in the cold and flu season for her, we go up to that 2,000 uh, closer to daily, like one, one to 2,000 daily. So she might go from 5,000 to 6,000 in the uh, summer and sun exposed. And she's swimming and out in the mm-hmm. sun a lot. And oh, yeah. we don't really do sunscreen unless we're at the beach. Um, even long pool days. And so uh, she saves five, 6,000 a week. And then she goes up to like 12 to 15,000 basically on, on average as her dosing. I dose at 5,000 I use per day. Um, again, in the summer, I might skip one or two days. Um, and I do test my vitamin D. We'll talk about optimal ranges in a moment. Um, but if I'm feeling a scratchy throat or if I've been exposed, my yoga teacher just tested positive for COVID and um, I just went up for three days at 10,000 I use. If I was personally symptomatic, then I would hit 20. Mm-hmm. And if I was dynamically symptomatic, I would dose a couple days potentially at 50. Like yeah. three days of 50, three days of 20, maybe five, 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 and then hang at five kind of thing. Yeah. I think I did like five to six capsules of our vitamin D balance blend. When which I would be 30,000 I used. 30,000, yeah. mm-hmm. just because I was like, five capsules seems like a lot, um, but could have taken more safely. And they're tiny. They're sure. tiny yep. capsules. They're, they are easy to get down. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the goal is when you're looking at vitamin D dosage to consider the first preliminary scoring or where you are in your Mm -hmm. vitamin D status. Um, We say optimal vitamin D levels of your 25 hydroxy vitamin D should be between 50 to 100. Um, And so when we're looking at ranges, that is something that you can do through our website. If you don't want to go in and make a doctor's appointment, I definitely recommend by the time we get to September and October that every listener does their due diligence and gets their vitamin D level tested. So you can do a blood spot on our website. I'll put the link in the show notes. It's 75 bucks. And you can do that for all members of your household. You ship it in, you get your data, and you also get an email from us with our practitioner ranges advising you on supplementation to ensure that you are at that optimal range of that 50 to 100. And so we might say, if you're at that 50 to 100, the other question we ask then is, well, were you supplementing with vitamin D? Mm -hmm. Because if you score at 63, for instance, and it's August when you test your vitamin D spot, and you were outside maybe 60 to 70% more of a threshold than you will be outside in November, December, January, and you were supplementing daily with 5,000 IUs of vitamin D, well, then we'd probably say as we transition into the fall, consider two days a week doing 10,000 IUs mm-hmm. and five days a week at 5,000. So there is a little bit of that customized handholding that we do with that lab feedback. It's not a dynamic lab review like right. we do with our other online labs, but I think that does help with making that $75, having that confidence interval of getting your data, knowing how to adjust your dosage for every household member. Yeah. And it's a really easy test to do. I did it on myself, on Byron, and then I even did it on Noah. Um, which What did Noah's come back at? I think last time we were on the podcast, we didn't have it. His results. was 43. So I actually upped a little his lower, yeah. vitamin D. Um, and, and I think he's a little bit on the heavier side for his age group. So I think I was keeping him at like the baseline lowest dose. So I've upped him now to half an ml um like okay. four times a week 
And sometimes I'll even go higher than that, honestly. Um, and, and because vitamin D is fat soluble, we know that we can do those kind of mega doses yes. and we're not going to quote unquote overdose or, or deal with any toxicity. Um, so I'll do that, you know, a full ML actually, if he seems like he's coming down with something or around someone who's sick, um, or recently we were just flying. So I did that for a couple of days at that higher dose. I think that's great. And it's also important to note it, note though, that you're also a breastfeeding mom that mm-hmm. is also supplementing, supplementing with vitamin yeah, yeah. D and checking your vitamin D right. status. So if you were insufficient or you weren't supplementing, his level would be even lower, exactly. even though you're yep. supplementing yep. him. And so mine was 53 and I'm pretty diligent about taking one capsule daily. Maybe I miss like to weekend days if I'm outside, um, but I'm really fair skinned and I can't be in the sun as long for other as other people. So that's something I do year round. Um, and even since getting that back, I've been uh, pulsing in like ten thousand twice a week. Yeah, yep. You're gonna take an extra one after we get off. I can tell because sure, you just got. I can see I your, sure your wheels turning. I already took two You're this like, morning. <laughs> oh, I'm still in my postpartum window. Yeah. I just got off an airplane. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm yep. Sorry. Yep. You're <laughs> Okay. Um, so let's nerd out a little bit on, um, the supportive nutrients with vitamin D. There's some cool stuff here that, um, maybe we weren't as aware of or or haven't pushed as hard. Yes. Like I said, in podcast episode 250, that's why we love doing this every Monday because it helps Becky and I to to stay shiny in our clinical up-to-date data. (laughs) So we've talked to you guys about the importance of vitamin D with K1 and K2 uh, in relationship of regulating calcium and preventing calcification of soft tissues. I feel like that's the primary thing that we say, and that is very factual and true. So when you are supplementing with vitamin D, it's optimal to look for a formula that has that active vitamin K2. Um, This is going to ensure that there is not arterial calcification or calcification of soft tissues. Like when you're looking at a carotid calcium scan to uh, look at assessment of heart disease and plaque formation, this is what we're talking about preventing with having that K2 in its structure. So it ensures that the calcium is regulated in the body, goes into the bones where it needs to go, and vitamin K2 plays a really good role in bone health and structural health. Um, It's made in the colon. So many individuals tend to run actually quite low, especially if they have dysbiosis or they don't have an optimal good gut flora. And I have seen, I actually just reviewed a micronutrient test of an individual where their vitamin D level, they had a serum level, a 25 hydroxy from their doctor and they were at like 67, beautiful. Um, Their vitamin D was perfect on the micronutrient test, but they had a functional low vitamin K. And I was like, this is, I said, well, are you supplementing with vitamin D? And they said, yeah. And I was like, my vitamin D? And they were like, no. (laughs) We caught you. I know. It was was actually kind of, I mean, not to say funny, but it was in the sense that they were like, oh, honestly, I try to, you know, prioritize and budget. And I get it, guys. Mm -hmm. But it was one of those points where it was like, oh, well, like, yeah, just because it's another 5,000 IU vitamin D formula, that K1, K2 is really important matrix for that reason. And by taking that vitamin D, yes, you might be getting some of these benefits, but you could be putting yourself at increased risk for that calcification. So that's important to note. Also, what's important to note, which I found is the new information, um, there was data from nearly 3,000 individuals that looked that you actually need 244% 
more oral vitamin D supplementation if you aren't also supplementing with magnesium and K2. Um, and so when we look at the vitamin D connection there, we know that vitamin D improves magnesium absorption, but large doses of vitamin D can actually deplete magnesium. And we've talked about how magnesium is that ultimate chill pill, really important for skeletal muscular function, really important for neurological and cardiovascular function as well. Um, so that magnesium is required in the conversion of vitamin D into its active form, and just supplementing with vitamin D alone can drive deficiency. So this was a big aha where I was like, oh, how much do you need? And it looked like about 400 milligrams of magnesium daily. So if you're taking a scoop and a half of our Relax and Regulate with the magnesium bisglycinate, and you're getting a good quality multi from our line, you're gonna be in good shape with your magnesium. And then of course, extra credit for eating your two to three cups of leafy greens, which also are gonna support that vitamin K there. Um, and then the vitamin K1, K2 matrix provides you the perfect distribution to optimize the vitamin D status while preventing that calcification. Super interesting. And, and I would say like a lot of the symptoms and populations that I'm often prescribing, you know, vitamin D for, I'm also prescribing magnesium right. for those individuals as well. Um, but that's a, a great kind of aha connection. And then, you know, on the topic of, of kind of cutting corners or, or trying to prioritize supplements, well, you know, if you are taking 5,000 IU of, of just vitamin D, you're likely not absorbing and utilizing as much either. So you're kind of losing out in terms of um, efficacy of, of actually getting and absorbing that dosage. Yeah. And over time, again, I, I made this note when we were filming for our uh, Food as Medicine for the Whole Family program that we're launching soon. Because we now are supplementing infants with vitamin yeah. D, it's extremely essential that we don't create dysfunction, vitamin D or excuse me, vitamin K or magnesium deficiency in those individuals because for many kiddos, that's the only supplement that they're taking, right? So I just yep. think that that's a really extreme call to action. Um, again, our vitamin D balance blend comes with both K1 and the MK7 form, which is the active K2 to support that absorption and reduce that risk of calcification. Um, and then I think, you know, in your kids, the magnesium thing from the food as medicine is a good start. Um, but the, the K1, K2 is the highest factor of consideration in your matrix with your vitamin D supplement. So I would say that's kind of one of my non-negotiables. If you're going to supplement with vitamin D, it's got to be a blend. And you should check out our two products, the vitamin D balance blend capsule, which gives you 5,000 IUs per capsule or the liquid dropper, which is 2,000 IUs per ml. Super, super important. And, and you know, when a pediatrician gives the recommendation of, okay, your baby needs to start with 400 IU daily, I have never heard anyone say, you know, anything about the quality or the brand or the form of D3 with K2. Um, and there's just not, there's not the information out there really at all. And ours is the only one I've found that is, you know, safe for infants and uh, contains that K2. All of the like baby vitamin Ds are just the D3. Right. And we're using MCT oil as a carrier versus soybean oil. Mm -hmm. So when right. you're talking about supporting those lipid, bilipid membranes of the cell walls, you know, you want to be mindful of that structural component when you're giving that to your child on a daily basis. Yes. And just to note again, all the more important if you are listening as a parent and you aren't supplementing your kid with vitamin D, 
this season, mm-hmm. as we're hearing, because we're going to shift in a moment after we talk food as medicine into DVOC variants, but this is the season that we want to get them really loaded and ready to support their immune system and have less of that fear, less of the down the rabbit hole of these really illogical draconian guidelines of masking children again and, and what's coming down the hatch. Yes. Yep. And and not only for COVID, for, you know, flu and other respiratory stuff and Depression. all the gunk that kids get. And yeah, mood, anxiety, <laughs> all of it. I'm into it. <laughs> um, let's talk a little more just about UV exposure and, and how much sun exposure is enough. What are the considerations there? Like, do I need to be outside in my bathing suit or is exposing right. my forearms enough? Yeah. So, you know, it is again that UVB light that comes from the sun. So you're not going to get that from your like blue light screens unfortunately wouldn't that be an interesting like wonderful benefit if, right? if that that's, happened it's a good biohack for someone yes. to come up with right? <laughs> um, and so it's said that you know a few minutes of sunlight to the face neck hands arms are necessary for vitamin d but there is a variability of course on skin pigmentation as well as where we are in the equator line and so the amount of sunlight required for photo conversion of that seven hydro cholesterol to pre-vitamin D is going to vary considerably on age. Um, And so even like cellular turnover, thinking of like older skin versus younger skin, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to have less sun damage, of course. And so there's actually something called the Fitzpatrick sun reactive skin type. Um, And there's six Fitzpatrick skin type classifications that look at sensitivity to ultraviolet light. Skin type one is going to be the most fair and, you know, never, you know, always burns, never tans. And type three is darker white, uh, Caucasian still European skin that is going to burn and tan. Type four is in getting into the tan brown pigments that are rarely burning and tanning easily all the way up again into class six. And so investigators found that it took equivalent of uh, 4,000 to 1,000 IUs of vitamin D as an oral supplementation um, to equivalent about 15 minutes in the winter and six minutes in the summer for the type three. So that's like the middle of that flow. And then, you know, so 1,000 IUs of manufacturing in six minutes of summer and 15 minutes of winter. And then um, again, we're going to see it go higher. So in a type four, we're gonna see 15 minutes in the summer, 29 in the winter respectively. Um, And so if we're talking about noon in the summertime in Boston, there's gonna be exposure times that are approximate to those in Miami, um, but but in the winter, right? And so again, there's, there's gonna be changes of equator season, skin type, so much to consider. Generally, um, what I say is to put areas of your arms that are not often going to be exposed to the sun, so like your forearms. Um, I'll link that study. I thought it was really interesting through the New England Journal of Medicine where it kind of looks at different locations Uh and and minutes if you want to nerd out on it. Um, But, you know, looking at non-sun damaged areas of the skin and actually ensuring that you're skipping and conscious of the sunscreen for at least 15 to 30 minutes when outside. Um, And in the winter, trying to get outside as well would be an important thing to consider. And if it's just your face exposed in the winter, maybe at least pull up your forearms of your coat um, and make sure that your daily lotion, maybe you use a serum instead of a daily like BB cream or something that has that SPF in it. Yeah. And take off your sunglasses too, because there's synthesis through the eyes. There is synthesis through the eyes. Yes. And I think that's really important to note. And then if you're wearing like big bug sunglasses, like we do. um. Yeah. (laughs) 
covers a lot of skin too. Totally, totally. Okay, um, let's maybe talk about um, some of the dietary considerations and food as medicine, functional medicine support. Yes, yeah, so I'll go kind of fast because I do want to talk a little DVOC as I promised you guys. So I think the biggest thing to consider is, you know, again, remembering that cholesterol is the precursor. And so we want to have optimal cholesterol and cholesterol rich foods may be supportive of of our vitamin d status so looking at of course like our egg and egg yolk actually has vitamin d in it Uh, looking at krill and shrimp and um, other components in the seafood family we see salmon is a very popular fatty fish that's going to have the vitamin d herring and sardines especially if you're able to eat the liver like you know cod liver oil would be a good source um, or liver of any animal because again that's the primary production so we're, we're going to have already released at the time of this our liver meatball youtube video where we make with like a um panko crust made from pork rinds instead of breadcrumbs and um, grass-fed beef liver or chicken liver would be a great way to get vitamin d up and then in the kind of vegetarian family the only thing out there really is the mushrooms Um, there is some influence on uh, mushrooms to be a form of vitamin d but i'm not a fan of the fortified foods so like when you look at vitamin d there is some in your grass-fed dairy naturally occurring Uh but most of the milk products are going to be synthetically enriched and then of course watching out for anything that's calling out with vitamin d because that means that there's going to be low quality synthetic enrichment of probably folic acid instead of that methylfolic um, and that's probably calling out somewhat of a processed product in general. Totally. And, and when we're talking about, um, you know, animal foods in general, those that have access to sunlight themselves are yes. going to be better sources of vitamin D. So I think uh, prioritizing source is really, really important here. Yeah. Getting enough fat, pasture-raised animal products, eating snout to tail is going to be a great way to get there. And upping your egg yolks, I think, is a great yeah. thing to do. Yeah. And then the last thing I would say in in just looking at like the functional medicine approach here is of course making sure that your liver and kidneys are functioning optimally. Um, So we would wean out of course any of the risk factors of any of those drug nutrient interactions that we talked about early. But then we also wanna see like if someone has elevated liver enzymes like their ALT and ALST is up, we want them to be doing our 10 day detox and then following up with taking the Reset Restore Renew detox packs because a happy liver is going to be a happy producer of vitamin D as well as cholesterol, that pro-hormone, as well as sex hormone, as well as um, you know regulating our ketone production and our blood sugar management and so much more. So I think supporting healthy liver and kidney function through detox is a component that would be really equilateral to consider. And especially thinking at this time again, as we're rounding out, going into the fall, rounding out the summer, this is a great time to kind of set the pace and a 10-day detox would be a great thing to consider. Yes, I think that's a, a really good point. We don't always think of that in conjunction with vitamin D status, especially if you know, you've been taking D ongoing forever and your status is just not going up. I think that detox could be a really good reset, even if liver enzymes aren't necessarily elevated. Totally, totally, no doubt. And and just supporting your liver proactively if you're taxing it as well. Don't wait yep. until a biomarker says something's exactly. wrong. Exactly. Know what you're doing and, yep. and modify and bubble wrap based yep. on your lifestyle for yep. sure. Awesome. Okay. Should we do it? I um, think so. <laughs> all right. So this is about two months out actually from our, our last episode of talking about DVOC, or I guess in here we can say COVID because 
can say whatever the hell we want. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But literally, we just put out um, episode 243 the week that Fauci's email release dropped, and nobody's talking about that anymore, of course. But um, let's let's just chat on updates and um, talk about variants and whether or not we need to be concerned about the delta yes i almost squeezed in because it was so we we pre-record right so uh we're recording this on august 2nd you know and so when we released that episode then later that thursday that Mm -hmm. week the fauci emails dropped i was like no i mean nothing contradicted it was just more juice that i wanted to more tea to sip on I suppose during the process but um, a lot has gone on since last episode and I think it just continues that concept of following the money so um, I'm just going to unpack a couple current frustrations and then also uh, kind of where I'm at peace of mind and how I'm kind of putting on my seatbelt going into the fall because we know that fall historically seasonally is a viral season and time fall late fall into winter so if we're already seeing shit hitting the fan we need to really be grounded and and feeling resilient yep so in constructs of following the money um we have recently found out as of the 21st of july Uh, that as of December 31st of 2021, the CDC is withdrawing its request for the um, EAU authorization of the PCR test. So the test that we're using, that we're tracking case numbers, um, that we've talked about in past episodes, in in episode 243, as Becky noted, uh, we talked about that uh, cycle threshold, right? And how cycle thresholds were substantially higher and were statistically noted to be insignificant when we repeat that many cycles of a PCR test um, because the test doesn't know whether it's testing the DNA of itself through the cycling or the uh, subject that it's testing. We also talked about this a little bit in 219 on DVOC. Um, So cycle threshold in PCR, I think, has been a component of manipulation, driving fear, and driving the need of interventions, whether it be lockdown, mask mandates, et cetera. It's really interesting timing that, again, the last day of this year, 2021, we're losing the EAU authorization, so that test will no longer be considered valid, okay? And what's more within this The Soros Economic Development Fund, founded by George Soros, with support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and several philanthropic investors, announced the day fall the day prior, excuse me, on the 20th of July, the launch of Global Access Health, a social enterprise that seeks to expand access to affordable medical technology. Within this initiative, there is a acquisition of a UK company, Mologic. And within that, rapid diagnostic technologies. It was a $41 million deal. And this is what's going to take the place of the PCR test as of January 1st of 22. Hmm. What humanitarians. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in following the money further, right? right? So, I mean, and that's, gonna, that's going to dynamically impact the pandemic because it defines who's infected. Right. Does that make right. sense with all the listeners? Right. Um, okay. Do we know anything about that test? I tried yeah. to dig okay. a little bit into the mechanism I of it and what it anything. uses. Okay, no, we'll but find it, out. But interesting that these same philanthropists, I'm using right. air quotes, are the investors of the Schmack Schmeens, right? Right. right. Hmm. Everyone's gonna have it. So 100% Pfizer, positivity rate. <laughs> Pfizer projects 
$33 billion in COVID vaccine revenue. Um, and this is driven now by boosters and vaccines for kids. If they could just increase the population of um, the age that is able to get EAU authorization, then their proceeds, you know, their profits would go substantially up. So they hiked its projections for COVID vaccine revenues, telling investors that they expect booster shots and they expect another vaccine to be developed targeting the Delta variant and anticipated authorization for children as young as six months will drive revenues higher. Mm. They sure will. They sure will. Um, a lot of kids. Yeah, and then we keep hearing through this based on scientific evidence that the narrative we keep hearing is, and I'm using air quotes again with that scientific evidence, um, the narrative that we keep hearing now in August is that unvaccinated people are these viral factories that are more you know, more dangerous variants are coming out. And both of those factors are false. So it's important to stop and pause and acknowledge that as of recording this today, the unvaccinated population is actually the majority, just over half, 51% of the U.S. Um, has not been uh, fully vaccinated with two doses of the experimental injection. It's important also to note that just like antibiotics can breed resistance to bacteria, vaccines actually put an evolutionary pressure on viruses to speed up mutations and create more virulent, dangerous variants. That's why vaccines should never be something that's mandated and should always be thought of as a cost to benefit impact because the influence on the populace may not always be black and white, favorable or unfavorable. Viruses mutate all the time. And if you have a vaccine that doesn't block the infection completely, like this particular mm -hmm. experimental injection works, right? It allows specifically you to get infected, but it is supposed to support like a computer program for your body, I think was the quote, right? <laughs> to support the way that your body responds to the said infection through spike protein production. Um, you know, then the virus itself will continue to mutate to evade that immune response of that person. And, and again, it's really distinct to call out that these injections are not designed to block infection. They allow infection and they should at best lessen the symptoms of that infection in um, the individual. An unvaccinated person, the virus does not encounter that same evolutionary pressure to mutate into something stronger. Um, so there's no blockade. And if you already have the T cells, you're going to be protected. Otherwise you will be infected and you're going to require on your, your innate and acquired immune system and maybe some therapeutic drugs to help your body through the process. So the kind of moral there is if SARS-CoV-2 does end up mutating into more lethal strains, mass vaccination could potentially be the bigger driver. So it could be the flip scale of what we're hearing in the media. Sure. And, and is it indeed mutating into more lethal strains or right. are we looking at just more testing or what's going on? Likely less lethal, which mm -hmm. is not surprising. And that's kind of how all mutations have worked in the history of viruses. My right. caveat to that I've said to individuals when they ask me is, this is likely, as we're now likely acknowledging, a lab-manufactured right, right. gain-of-function virus. So the way it mutates may be different. And now we're playing with a genomic influencing factor, not a standard vaccine. So, so we have two variables that are, quote-unquote, new science 
that could definitely impact when we look historically at how viruses process through a population that, that are going to shake things up. And, and, you know, my perspective is always less is more. I think the telltale of what we've seen in pathology would, would give us a little bit more confidence of how we address this, but, but here we are. Um, the Delta variant, though, yes, is associated with more conventional flu-like symptoms like runny nose, sore throat, um, doesn't have the shortness of breath um, and the severity of respiratory impact, is not looking to have as high of mortality, is not looking to have that association of the loss of smell. Um, and we're seeing that the variant um, differential is at most 0.3% different from the original Wuhan virus, um, which is a very minor variation. And that means that the virus itself likely will not present as its own new virus. Now, again, how does that impact the $33 billion Pfizer projections of making a virus variant vaccine? And what messaging are we going to hear and studies right. pushed out to show that it, in fact, is much different and is more lethal to push for the sales? I don't know. Time will tell. Sounds a lot like a cold. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, if you've, yep. re if you've yep. recovered from COVID-19, your immune system will still recognize it, regardless of the variant. And I think that's important to call out. Um, natural immunity, again, continues to not be acknowledged and, and really needs to be. Um, and, you know, when we look at what natural immunity is denoted by, we have to continue to push the, the conversation that it's not antibody mediated. It has very little to do with whether or not you have antibodies against SARS-CoV-2. Antibodies are not your primary defense. It's a tagging mechanism. Your T cells are the primary defense. Um, and so we don't necessarily have a lot of access. There are some labs out there. I'll probably talk a little bit more about that as I, I dig deeper myself. I'm trying to figure out for my household mm -hmm. whether or not my concerns are, will the information be public access right. record? Yeah. I don't know if that's going to be working for or against me. So maybe we'll come up with an alias on the lab form. That might be a potential consideration. Um, and then, you know, what the labs themselves are testing for in the types of T cell more acquired immune response, because we are seeing the impact of natural immunity so far looking to surpass the second shot of the injection. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really interesting. And again, not going to be shared because there's no profit in that, in that story, that narrative per se. Right. There was something that came out of, um, I'm forgetting the name of, <laughs> forget I said anything, but there, there was like a brief moment blip on the radar where a study came out of one of the big medical institutions. I've literally blanked on um, which one, but stating that natural immunity was just as good as the vaccine. And that was very, very quickly suppressed Yeah, and it's gone. It's just wiped out. <laughs> Yeah, it's so sad. And that's what makes me just kind of turn away further and further and further. Sure. Um, because it, it's just, to me, so transparently about monetization. Right. Um, I think that the importance of T-cells has been known for a long time. Um, as we've talked about with Spanish flu, we can see, you know, 90 plus years of memory immune uh, protection in the individual. And I think it's important to note this, Becky, I don't know if this came across what you were thinking of, but... Um, when we were looking at individuals that recovered from SARS-CoV-1, okay, um, responsible for the SARS outbreak 17 plus years ago, um, we found out that those individuals also had immunity with SARS-CoV-2. Mm -hmm. So again, this was 17 years, a different virus. This was actually truly a different virus, not a 0.3 variation of it. 
And we found that they still had protective immunity based on their T cell memories against SARS-CoV-1 and that those cells also recognized the SARS-CoV-2 even though they were 80% similar instead of having the 99.7% similarity. So if a 20% difference wasn't enough to circumvent the immune system of these patients, why would you be concerned with a variant that is only a 0.3% right. variable? Right. You know, that's a really good point. And I think that that comes down to if government scientists are telling you that this variant is going to masquerade as a new virus and threaten your health and that you need to lock yourself up in your doors again and put masks on your children and we're going to say mask mandates for all, that we need to start just bucking and, and putting our feet down and saying no because this is lying. This is the pharmaceutical industry making top up influencing our our mandates and, and it's pretty despicable at best yes and as we see the money piling up we also see adverse reactions with the mandates also coming down the pipeline right i mean so that yep. 33 billion was just pfizer you know moderna is okay. expecting uh 18.4 billion mm -hmm. in 2021 barclays uh analyst uh jenna wang forecasted uh 22's revenue to be around uh 12.2 billion johnson and johnson's expecting 10 billion i mean so we're talking about over 60 billion dollars plus mm -hmm. um just in the year of 2021 Okay. Yeah. And so, yes, the the adverse reactions do yeah. add up as well. And so just as of today, um, there was an increase in, um, let's see what I had here, an increase of 535 adverse effects over the prior week when I looked at the up-to-date VAERS. And we're looking at right now 518,770 adverse effects um, specific to this injection. Um, this world of injections, right? And we talked about myocarditis in our CoQ10 episode, so definitely that's one to think about. 21% um, of deaths from the injection were tied to cardio cardiovascular disorders. Um, we found that the average death was lower than the average death rate from um, COVID, which is mm -hmm. interesting. Again, the protective mechanism or the, the solution actually more harmful to a lower age group than the disease itself, which has higher association with mortality just by age cycle mm -hmm. itself, which I think is important to call out. Um, as of July 23rd of this year, 2,500 pregnant women reported adverse effects, 885 reports of miscarriage and premature birth, yet we continue to see OBGYNs recommending and calling out pregnant women, and you know, I, I think that's just despicable. Um, we've seen over 2,400 cases of Bell's palsy, 50% attributed to Pfizer, 43% to Moderna. So we tend to see more of the neurological stuff. Um, Guillain-Barr syndrome, GBS, 467 cases, um, majority with uh, Pfizer and Moderna. Um, anaphylaxis, 119,000 reports plus of anaphylaxis. Uh, blood clotting disorders, and it goes on. Pretty wild, and again, it's weighing this cost-benefit of all of those adverse reactions, and knowing that theirs is likely only you know one percent reporting, right? And you know, this is a CD. Th this is really wild, knowing that just this week, and I'm going to wrap up. Just this week is the week that the CDC released its unpub unpublished document that found that those that were vaccinated compared to those that were not vaccinated, carry the same viral load of the Delta variant. This 
Delta variant that's so scary that we have to say all must, we're going to start mandating vaccines and you can't go to the grocery store. You can't, I heard Don Lemon going off about, can't go to the ball game. Can't go. This is just how we're going to go. And Joe Biden called people that talk about, uh, um, share information against vaccines as murderers all in this last two weeks. So this is all coming mm-hmm. at us, this heavy gamut of you must vax, yet we're specifically seeing from CDC documentation that there is the same nasal pharynx load of this Delta variant in those that are vaccinated versus non. So there's a total incongruency mind F of why you would mandate something which has demonstrated by your own party of research and scientists to be ineffective. Yep. I just can't. I, I can't tell you why. So, <laughs> so Rachel Walensky uh, yeah. said, you know, just this week, the measures we need to get this under control, they're extreme. The measures you need are extreme. The virus is once again surging across the U.S., especially in areas where fewer people are vaccinated. That's absolutely incongruent with, you know, maybe it's actually in areas where fewer people had the infection because it'd be interesting to see the study of how T-cell memory mm-hmm. reduces the viral load as opposed, right, because it actually can handle variants as opposed to the schmackshmeen. So, I mean, this, this I think, should make anyone more skeptical than ever and question uh-huh. the push. Um, we also just this week heard a release from Biden that state and local governments are to give uh, $100 to residents that get vaccinated, which sounds a little bit close to the Book of Revelations, just saying, um, financial incentive in a direct way. It sounds and, desperate is what it sounds yeah. like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I think that, you know, we need to be mindful and not cast aside hard-won science lessons that have stood the test of time, like herd immunity, including natural infection, right? Um, the impact of an acquired and, and innate immune system, and not take in favor instead the politically driven financially driven propaganda because propaganda isn't science we have to stop confusing propaganda with science Mm -hmm. um i think that there has been just too much of that and fairly i have to say i have made a conscious shift in my approach to this as of saying it out loud for accountability as of august of 21 I am, you know, shifting gears with this bad season because there's been so much gaslighting and bait switching. And I was talking to my husband Brady about it when the when France put out their release on the vaccine mandates and then Israel followed just last week. And then all this garbage is coming out. I have ICU nurses reaching out to me that are clients of mine saying, you know, we were the ones that were the heroes and now we're being called the villains. Mm-hmm. And like I'm having a really hard time holding the line of being unemployed when I was infected with COVID, I survived, I helped people, I saved lives, and now I'm being threatened. I'm being threatened. Right. Um, and, and so it's a really heavy, dark moment that that I've had to kind of just literally, for my mental sanity, shift because I, I realize that I'm like gobbling up the breadcrumbs that the propaganda is laying out for me. It's pissing me off. It's bringing me low bi- vibration. And I already know it's propaganda. So what is the next aha, laughable factoid going to benefit me? You know, I I really do uh, take great um, pride in helping to share with you guys this information and help you guys to navigate the gunk. 
but I'm done swimming in the shit pool, to be honest. <laughs> like, I'm just done. I think it drives mental insanity for critical thinkers. And um, I just need to know what I know and um, not follow the trail that, of the breadcrumbs that they're releasing for me. May I use that as our quote for this episode? I'm not swimming in the shit pool anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's great. I mean, at the end of the yeah. day, yeah. The, the reality is we have to focus on empowerment. We have to do what we can to be resilient because if it's the Lamba, if it's the name it, right, the Alpha Omega, you name it, right, variant of said COVID, I am going to optimize my vitamin D status. I am going to optimize the inflammation status in my body and regulate it. I am going to eat an antioxidant-rich diet, support metabolic health, mellow my hustle, be grateful and happy and connected in my community, and live the life that I want to live, not asking for permission. And um, I hope that through what we've shared, we've given you guys a little bit of courage to do the same and that never again you know we're sharing the darkness that is i think we have to see it for what it is and we have to continue to shine the light as best we can all right let's do it (laughs) (laughs) so until next week (laughs) thank you always for listening hopefully uh you are all feeling empowered with the role of vitamin d in the multi functional approach and this was just an extra nail in the coffin of if leaders are not using this cheap effective tool and actually suppressing its efficacy are they really trying to help us thank you for listening to the naturally nourished podcast visit our blog at allymillerrd.com for recipes wellness tips and food as medicine meal plans Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.